0: found the diggin oak island podcast the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the oak island mystery i'm dave mcbride thank you so much for downloading and listening if you've been listening to and enjoying our show please help us out by becoming a patron go to patreon.com slash diggin oak island to learn more All right, this is a very busy week for me, St. Patrick's Day, probably my biggest week as far as work goes, so uh, I'm going to try to uh, wing this podcast a little bit more than I usually do, so if it sounds a little uh, less uh, planned out and Put together, I, uh, I apologize in advance, just trying my best to get a podcast out to you guys, even during a real busy week at work for me. Anyway, let's start off like I always love to do with your comments and questions. We can actually start over on the Patreon with our friend Claude who writes, okay, time to rant again. This is a problem I have with paper found tonight, he's talking about last night, or uh, a week ago, as well as some questions in regard to the original parchment found years ago. Why only a piece of parchment? Even years ago, after the collapse of the money pit, how would one only find a small piece of parchment within a large grab? I mean, if it was going to store documents underground of a significant nature, wouldn't I store them together? Wouldn't books be bound with pages on top of pages or documents stacked or rolled together? Shouldn't we find more really close by or stuck together? Always wondered this. Most so glad to see they verified the paper was not parchment, but was a piece of paper blast paper from dynamite. That's a uh, premise we have not seen on the show as of late. Hooray for being honest and upfront with the viewers on that one. Uh, Claude, I agree. Definitely on the last part there, my friend. Um, a lot of times we would have some conjecture about something, uh, you know, some guesses by Gary Drayton or whoever it might be, you know, and, uh, and then that's it. And then we just never hear from it again. And we just, it's almost like the editors just try to keep that in our heads, whether it be true or not, right? Rarely do we actually get to see something disproved. And my best example of this is, you know, years ago, a few years back, we found something, um, a lead thing, and then we had an expert come on and say it looked like a Roman pylum you know, some sort of Roman era uh, weaponry. And uh, that was disproved. But you wouldn't know that unless you happened to catch a quick sentence on a Matty Blake special, not on the Curse of Oak Island, but on one of these drilling down things. Uh, it used to be like that. They'd be very clandestine about uh, pieces of artifact or artifacts and things that have been disproved. This one, they were right, right up front with it. And Claude, the only thing I can say about that first part of your email is, yes, those are all logical questions. I mean, if we go back decades to when that famous piece of parchment was recovered, and we're going to talk about that later, this is the one with the uh, VI written on it, I think, um, or IV, VI, yeah. We can only assume that this was just a small piece of a larger document, right? I mean, that's just logical, really. So where is the rest of that document? Forget everything else about that parchment. Forget the theories like Shakespeare's manuscripts or whatever it might be, Bacon stuff or Francis Bacon stuff, and instead just focus on the finding of that one little piece of parchment. How did it get down there? This piece was found at the end of a drill bit. It was minute. The drill quite obviously went through a much larger piece of paper, one would assume, and took this small fragment from it. Where is the rest of that piece of paper? And how come after all these years we haven't found more of it? This is a theme I'm going to come back to, um, Later on during the episode review, that theme being that at what point do we start adding all of this work up that's been done over all of these years, especially when we get into this really big work being done now, and then start to draw conclusions about it. I mean, these guys have moved a lot of earth. Just the Laginas, right? They have sifted through tons of spoils piles and do all of it today, too. If there is a treasure and even something like a trove of documents or a chest full of coins down there... And it was a treasure that was blown apart by a giant collapse of the money pit and by water and all that stuff. How much earth do these guys have to sift through in the money pit area before we start to conclude that perhaps those series are not correct and nothing is there? Anyway, like I said, I'll get back to that later on. Great stuff, Claude. Okay, let's go now to Frank on Facebook, who writes "Um, that wash table makes my stomach hurt. Knowing the good stuff is under the wash table and should be run through a sluice, uh, an old story says a drill bit came up with small gold flakes. Unless there is a permit issue using a sluice because they may call it mining, uh, then they should be running everything they consider a spoils through a sluice or have me do it. <laughs> I adore Gary. His passion his love for dogs, but everyone should have a metal detector. Too much standing around instead of turning up surprises. And ox, uh, and ox shoes are not considered surprises. Matter of fact. Once you find something the second time, it's not a surprise. Unless the value changes, save it. Realizing I sound uh, bitter, I just noticed Rick dyed his hair. I don't know why you pointed that out. I haven't watched the last two or three weeks. Only listen to your podcast and know that I'm watching this week's episode. I'm texting this at the same time. Your podcast is more enjoyable than physically watching the show. Thank you, sir. And for that, you deserve a comment. Thanks and keep up the good work. And Tell Rick and Marty to get a sluice or explain why not. I'm always up to learn something new. Frank, I I am by no means an expert on this, but they do use a wash plant. And doesn't that use a sluice? I'm not really sure about that. Also, um, the other thing you need to know is Gary Drayton is the metal detector who is um, on camera. Uh, And we only see a very small bit of his work. I'm not 100% sure there isn't somebody else. We found somebody else the last couple of weeks, a surveyor named Eric Valois. We'll talk about him later. But there are people on the island that are doing other things, is the point I'm trying to make. And uh, they aren't all part of the cast of the show. The stuff on the table is stuff that has already been through this wash plant. This is sort of the piles out of the wash plant. Now, that wasn't always the case. They used to dump spoils right on the table a couple of years back when they purchased that plant. Um, also have to say, remember, this hunt is over two centuries old. Um, finding surprises, as you call them, is without question proven to be a very rare event on Oak Island over the years. Many hunters spent um, years and years on the island and never found anything that one would call a surprise. It's part of the course, really. And uh, another thing I want to mention is we're going to talk about a parchment again later. And, uh, you know, as you say, that parchment piece that they found was very, very, very tiny. And I don't know that it would be found now if it were the same way. I don't know. I'm not saying it wouldn't. I'm saying I don't know. Thank you, Frank. Great to hear from you. Okay, let's go now over to the emails and hear from Rob, who writes, Dave, this March 8th episode of The Curse strikes me as an unexpected departure from the rest of the season. The process by which they explored the paper wrapping for uh, probable dynamite found in the spoils of TF1 and the extrapolation that underground explosives use could account for why gold, might be found embedded in previous analyzed metal fragments was shockingly realistic for the show this season. Then we get a look at the strange lumber pulled out of the second can right before the ending narration on that episode. Two things regarding this, uh, the production stood out. First, during the paper analysis scene in the war room and during the strange lumber scene, the background music score had a noticeably different tone. Particularly in the lumber scene, music took a less suspenseful tone and a more hopeful one. As a musician, did this stand out for you? Second, it seems that for both these scenes that the narration got toned down and instead the editing relied more heavily on fellowship members to give context with that less hyperbolic, uh, that was less hyperbolic than I've come to expect. I listened to your review of the episode and so I understand and agree they abuse the term ancient. That being said, from a production standpoint, this is the most technically proficient episode I can remember. Rob from Texas. Great stuff, Rob. Um, I did not notice that musical cue you mentioned there. Uh, I've never really talked about the soundtrack much. And I honestly, it's because I really don't think a whole lot of it. It's not not good or bad. It just doesn't really kind of move me to comment, I guess, is probably the best way to, um, to put that. Uh, the other thing that you mentioned is that strange piece of lumber I talked about. It looked like a log. Again, no follow-up. Very disappointing. It did look weird. I was fascinated by it. I'm hoping we get back to it and see what that was all about. And and your second point there about how the team relied uh, on um, how the how the editing relied on the team to discuss things and not the normal hyperbole of the narration, I did notice that. However. I think this week's episode, they reverted back to that hyperbolic narration a bit. Uh, Great comments, Rob. Keep them coming. Thank you so much. Okay, let's hear now from uh, the perfectly named Dave who writes, Hi, Dave. Love the show. Listening each week brings a whole new level of enjoyment to a sometimes mundane or monotonous television series. I just have a silly question and maybe it has been answered, but I haven't heard anyone address it, at least over the past few seasons. I was just finishing your episode 16 podcast and heard you talking about putting a camera on the end of the hammer grab to see if they were in fact at bedrock. Uh, my question is, each time the hammer grab brings up a scoop, um, is it, full of, it is full of water. Is this because they have encountered the so-called flood tunnel or are we simply below the water table? It seems that at a certain depth, everything is completely saturated with water. Maybe this is the side effect of drilling, or are they simply below the water table? Obviously, this makes sending a diver or camera visibility near impossible, as I'm sure the water is extremely stirred. How about a small drill rig over the caisson to punch through the next 10 or 15 feet to make sure that, in fact, solid bedrock versus the concrete roof of the top of the vault? Keep up the good work, Dave. Uh, Dave, thank you so much. Um, I don't have an answer for you on the on the water table stuff. They are surprisingly uh tight-lipped about what is actually down there. I do find it strange how how tight-lipped they are about it. Um, like you said, we haven't looked at it. We're just sort of seem like we're kind of getting around and everybody's guessing. I can only imagine it's more than that, right? Um, I think they are below the water table, and of course, you know, this area of the money pit has been. Rife and and full of flooding over the years, so it's certainly not a surprise that there's water there. Uh, the question becomes: Is there water and dirt and muck? Um, and I think once they start cleaning it out and the water starts pouring in from the water table or natural water and all that kind of stuff, uh, then the water the hammer grab starts bringing up nothing else but the water, and that kind of seems to be where they are. But I don't have an actual answer for you on that. Um, I can only assume that's the answer. Would love to get more information. I'd love to get more in depth about this process and how they come to these conclusions. But we literally get a couple of scenes, um, you know, a couple of uh, a couple of words said by uh, people drilling, and that's really it. And that's going to happen again this week. So anyway, thanks, Dave. Great work. Let's uh, let's finish up this week's emails with a listener named Nick who writes, "Hey, Dave, I love the podcast. I'm from Nova Scotia and I have a little info for you." The difference between the three oak islands is that the species of oak tree found on our oak island is not native to North America. Those trees have since been cut down. Much of the wood and other artifacts being found, akshu, stone roads, pine tar, kilns, that kind of thing, debris washed ashore, and even musket balls can be found all over Nova Scotia, as its deep ports were a great place to repair vessels and set up military camps. Since the show has begun, I have gone from treasure believer to skeptic. I hope they find something, if only for Nova Scotia's history. The show makes the government involvement seem more impactful than it actually is because it gives them an out when they hit a dead end. They also put a lot of emphasis on these traces of gold and silver, which other experts would say is normal given the areas of history and mineral exploration. The money pit could even be from coastal mining, where miners would dig a shaft down and retrieve gold from below the ocean floor. The oak logs found every 10 feet were likely attached to a rope at one point and buried to use as a counterweight while hauling a ship up the slipway found at Smith's Cove so they could retar the ship's hull. Uh, By the way, Smith's Cove is the other more southerly beach in the middle of Sheardham Cove, and the Sheardham Cove is the one that refers to uh, as Smith's Cove. I'm not sure why. I'm going to get to all this in a second, folks. I know you're uh, wondering why I'm not stopping here, but I'm going to get to all of it. Almost everything pulled from the money pit has been from backfill. After the first attempt at the big dig ended at 145 feet, it was kicked off the island in 2007 by Dan I was kicked off the island in 2007 by Dan Blankenship. It was definitely crowned time. We tried to get a tour since I have been following the story since the early 1990s. Keep up the great work. I'll be on the Patreon soon. Nick. Okay, Nick, I'm going to go back to a couple of things here. Uh, thank you so much for the information on the Oak trees. Uh, I think I knew that. Um, I just find it funny that there's three Oak islands. Uh, anyway, (laughs) considering that, uh, you know, the Oak has always been so crazy. Uh, so, so, so big a part of the story here. Um, Let me go back to uh, something you wrote here about the government involvement. Uh, Seems more impactful. It actually gives them an out when they hit a dead end. Well, you're extrapolating there. I mean, they haven't done that yet. I mean, what dead end did they hit over there? They didn't hit any. In fact, they're still trying to continue the work over there. So um, you're drawing a conclusion there that I don't think is necessarily proven. I don't think you're wrong. I just don't think it's necessarily true yet. I mean, they... They stopped work over there and have been trying to continue it without digging. That's the only thing I have information on. Um, I'm the first, you know me, I'm the first one to, uh, to criticize them for the way they've handled this whole thing. But, um, you know what you, your, your conclusion you draw there, I, I think is, you know, not proven yet. I'll just put it that way. Um, I, first of all, thanks for taking the time to writing all this. Um, I'm not going to pick all of it apart, um, I'll let you guys do that. You know the listeners kind of think about some of those things that he wrote. I just want to point out a couple of things. I'm not sure about your oak plank logic here. Uh, I'm not sure why they why one would have done that to dig a 40 foot hole in order to careen a ship. Um, you know, I've I too have seen that process done, and and I reached out to a couple of people I know who are kind of you know, know these sort of things. And, and I've just never heard of a 40-foot hole being dug to careen a ship. Um, maybe I'm just not following what you mean here on that part. I'm not really sure. Also, the Sheardham Cove thing, I believe that comes from Google Maps, right? Uh, I mean, every single person who has ever talked or written about Smith's Cove, the one we know on the show as Smith's Cove and not the one, you know, the one that's to the east of the money pit, every single person, every single landowner, Every single researcher, historian, every treasure hunter, all of them have always referred to that cove to the east of the money pit as Smith's Cove and not Sheardham Cove, which is to the south of the money pit. I don't know why on Google Maps or whatever that gets switched around. And I don't know if that's, you know, if we're calling the right thing Smith's Cove, but I'm going to call it Smith's Cove because that's what everybody else calls it, right? (laughs) It'd just be impossible to kind of sift through all that if we didn't get that right. Um, again, the mistake is either Google's, or it's a very old mistake, one that goes back to the 1840s. And uh, you know, and and since you know, history has sort of corrected that. I would think uh, renaming these coves for history. I guess as far as your backfill thing is concerned, your email seems to have been um, something of a portent of things to come. Uh, as you sent this to me before the airing of this past episode. And in this week's episode, we hear more about backfill than ever before. <laughs> so we're going to really get into that. Thank you, Nick. Great stuff. Keep those fantastic emails coming. Thank you for, uh, everyone for, thank you to everyone for sending in your comments and questions this week. And if you have any questions or comments that you would like to hear discussed on a future podcast, just send them along to me, digginoakisland at gmail.com. All right, it's time now to discuss episode or season nine, episode 18 of the Curse of Oak Island called Playing the Dunfield. Is this our first Dunfield pun? I'm not sure. Anyway, let me go on. Okay, this entire episode is about the money pit area. So it's hard to kind of divide this up into sections in order to kind of more easily discuss it and follow up, but I'm gonna give it a try anyway. And I'm gonna do that by starting off with the spoils pile from the aforementioned Mr. Dunfield. Um, now the show did a great job this week of explaining who Robert Dunfield was and his work and even showed some really fantastic historical video from Dunfield's time on the Island. So there's really not any need for me to repeat all this, which we've talked about so much. Um, what is incredible though, is that Dunfield dug his huge pit more than half a century ago. And yet there is still this huge spoils pile that no one, I guess, seems to have really looked through, uh, up until now. I find that fascinating. Uh, now so here we are over at the pile billy's on the excavator gary has his metal detector or as he called it today his magic wand uh gary finds a small piece of what looks like metal piping and then later pulls out a piece of dirty old leather now a bit later on in the show david and peter Fernetti are joined by charles barkhouse on a drive up to halifax to show this little piece of leather to a man named joe landry we've seen joe many times before and uh his, his title, his working title of what he does is Book and Paper Conservator. And I got to tell you, the building he works in is absolutely gorgeous. It's part of the um, Nova Scotia College of Art and Design in Halifax. And every time I see it, I just think to myself, I got to get to Halifax one of these days. Anyway, Joe looks at this, examines it, says this piece looks to be from the sole of a boot and probably kind of a fancy one. Now, he the example he gives is one of a military officer's boot as opposed to a work boot. Now, this scene is very frustrating from an editing standpoint. And this goes back to the uh, comment we had before about hyperbole. It was clear to me that what Mr. Landry was doing here was offering examples of what, what he means by a nicer boot and not offering theories or conclusions on what this boot was. Yet the writers acted as though he said this was definitively from the military boot, and he didn't. He just didn't. He said that it was, he also said that it was made used a, using an oak tan, let me say that again. He said it was made using an oak tanning process. Now, one of the guys asks a logical question, when was that process in use, maybe trying to extrapolate some sort of date? And Joe answers, all the way back to the medieval period. And again, the editing steps in to gin the audience up here a little bit because they conveniently left out the rest of it that oak tanning continued for centuries after the medieval period. And I think it's still done on some scale today, right? Um, again, let me just emphasize this because that's really all we got out of this scene. And and um, I just want to point out that there was a lot of extrapolating and exaggerating in this scene, and it was not done by Joe Landry. You could see that, that he was just kind of, they were just sort of chopping up his words into these little, you know, nuggets that they thought were fascinating to make the scene look more intriguing anyway that's all from this scene let's take a break and we're going to come back and talk about the rest of the money pit all right let's go to the money pit here and at the beginning of the show the narrator says something. The narration says something that I'm that I really kind of got me thinking for a bit. He says, "It's the beginning of another potentially historic day on Oak Island." And my thought is, how many actual historic days have occurred on Oak Island? It's interesting. It's interesting when you think about it. Um, not that many over 225 plus years. Now there. Um, in this whole EC1 that they started last week, and it's down to 150 feet, and then there's a lot of talk about the chapel vault and the 1897 vault, and they talk about it a little bit, and I thought this would be a good time to sort of draw on one of our friends, Randall Sullivan, who wrote um, the book, The Curse of Oak Island, the story of the world's longest treasure hunt, and what he has to say about this moment, the discovery of the chapel vault or what it might be, okay? And... So I'm going to read to you from, from his book here. He says, uh, a sketch drawn by Frederick Blair, in February 1898, shows where the boreholes were drilled in a particular certain circular pattern around the rim of the pit. The water had been pumped down to a 100 foot level where a new platform was built and a drill mounted. William Chapel was, was one of those who operated the drill. He would describe in a sworn statement what the bit and the pipe it surrounded it brought up, brought back up to the platform. The first hole was bored to a depth of 122 feet before a piece of oak wood was penetrated. At 126 feet, the drill was stopped when it struck iron. A second hole was bored a foot away, and again the drill struck iron and was stopped. Chapel and the others decided to try a smaller drill, just one and a half inches in diameter. This drill deflected off the iron and went around it, passing first through puddled clay then striking soft stone or cement at a depth of 153 feet, 8 inches. The drill worked its way through the soft stone and then went through 5 inches of solid oak, which proved to the men on the platform that they had not yet reached bedrock. The drill was raised slowly and carefully by T. Purley Putman, who was on the platform with Chapel and Captain Welling. Welling was another guy who worked for the company here. Who had been placed in charge of removing, collecting, cataloging, and preserving the borings from the drill's auger bit? He panned out the drill, uh, panned out the dirt from the auger in direct sunlight, then meticulously gathered everything that floated in the water. There were oak chips, coconut husks. Putnam reported, plus a small piece of well, he was not sure what it was. He admitted, on instructions from Welling. Putnam, several days later, carried the borings he had collected in envelopes to the offices of Dr. A. E. Porter, a physician who was practicing in Amherst. They had chosen Porter as a consultant, Frederick Blair would explain later, because the doctor owned the most powerful microscope to be found in Nova Scotia at the time. On September 6, 1897, Porter examined the borings from the money pit in the presence of between 35 and 40 men, including Putnam and Blair. Almost immediately, his attention was attracted to the ball of strange fiber that Putnam had not been able to identify. It was only about the size of a grain of rice, as Porter would describe it, with some sort of fuzz or short hair on its surface. Using his metal instruments under the magnifier, Porter worked at this ball of fiber for several several minutes until it slowly began to unfold. After another few minutes, the doctor had it flattened out, whereupon he described it as being, to all appearances... A tiny piece of parchment with a fragment of writing in black ink that appeared to be parts of either the letters UI or VI or WI. Blair insisted on examination by experts in Boston associated with Harvard and Massachusetts Institute of Technology. They reported back the item most certainly was a piece of parchment that had been written with a quill pen and India ink. So, this is what everyone is searching for. This is the chapel vault. This is what people want to get back to. And it's at 153 feet in the money pit. I just thought I'd give you a little background about what that was all about, how important that was, because I think this is what we're going to be talking about quite a bit for, for, for a while here. And, uh, you know, at 153 feet to find parchment, you know, we go back to some of the things we said before about how, where's the rest of it. But still, to find that one piece, you can see why it has, um, you know, kept, kept people searching here for so long. Okay, our next stop is over at the wash table that we mentioned before with Eric Valois and Jack Begley. And what I wanted to point out here is that Eric is a surveyor, and he's listed as such. And he's a surveyor who obviously must be doing some sort of survey work off camera, but we don't see it. Again, there are more people working here than we get to see. They find a small, strange-looking rock that Jack thinks might be concrete, but we hear nothing more about it, so we can't really say much on it. While watching this again, I just can't help but wonder how much of this earth these guys are sifting through now, and still not finding the rest of that piece of paper or uh, gold coins that are supposed to be there. It's it's starting to get, you know, it's starting to get um, depressing a little bit as we go through each one of these cans, and we're going to go through another one today that just comes up with nothing. Um, Now, we go back to EC1. The guys pull out a large chunk of wood, but not much found here. And soon, they start to hit water again, and the oscillator slows down. This is very much the same thing that happened last time when the uh, first can came up empty. Soon, the team sort of gathers around, calls an end to the can, and Marty expresses some serious disappointment in all this, as we all feel that disappointment, you know. The team then convenes in the war room and the next scene we see here to discuss the next move, where the next can will go. They say they have two cans left in the budget. and Marty even says something like they're running out of time, indicating that maybe the season is getting late, that we're getting towards fall here. They decide to go after that spot that had the highest concentration of, of gold in their water tests from the end of last year. It also happens to be the spot that, ne- that is nearest to the deepest part of the Dunfield Crater. Now the thought here is Dunfield didn't go down far enough. He certainly didn't go down more than 153 feet. That's a popular refrain from treasure hunters that either they didn't go far enough or they didn't have enough money. I mean, even those who found that that parchment paper, that uh, chapel vault, you know, because of money and flooding and all those things, couldn't get to it. You know, couldn't get down to that depth again and look around. So anyway, they put in a new can. They name it DH82 after Dan Henske. And as they begin the new case on, I can't help but think um, that this is really just going to be a jambalaya of earth and junk brought up in these hammer grabs for the first, you know, who knows how long. Since Dunfield dug this hole and then just bulldozed everything back into it, everything, whether it was search or tunnel work, just bulldozed it all back in. So everything there is just like a just a jambalaya, <laughs> just just a, the big pot, big mess in there. now someone says they're expecting 69 feet of nothing but backfill. So I'm starting to wonder wonder whether or not this really is the deepest part of the crater because he did go down further than 69 feet. At 75 feet, they pull out what is clearly an old piece of cut wood and then perhaps uh, another wooden peg or a pin or part of it or a handle of something. Um, Later on, they find a, a much more timber, a bigger piece of timber. But that's really all. And that's really all we see of this can is the first, the beginning of it, as they seem to be splitting these things up over the course of, um, over the course of weeks. Honestly, I don't think anything found here short of a treasure in this spot is all that fascinating because of how much Dunfield did. If Dunfield was in fact on the right spot, um, he just destroyed everything above him. So we have to get down to a certain depth. And if we start to hit that depth and find nothing, even though we're supposedly found traces of gold here, then boy, I mean, this was I think this is kind of a gamble to go into this Dunfield thing here. Um, And they really are chasing properly, I think, the gold on those water tests. Um, You know, it's but until then, everything else they pull out is virtually impossible to conclude anything from it, especially if this was the actual part of the money pit, because if it was, then all that evidence of the money pit, all the work done there, all of the evidence that this is the right place, you know, because you can date the wood that's there was all destroyed by Dunfield decades ago. So that's going to do it for this episode of the Digging Oak Island podcast. Again, sorry about the short one here. Uh, Just a crazy busy work week for me. Be better next week. Uh, Shameless plug time. Don't forget to join me on WDVR-FM from 2 to 5 p.m. on Wednesdays. I'll be DJing there. I host a show from 2 to 4 called the Bourbon Street Bistro, play the music of New Orleans, and then from 4 to 5 p.m host a show called Island Vibes where I play music with a kind of a tropical feel. You can listen uh, in New Jersey and Pennsylvania on 89.7 FM or you can go to WDVRFM.org or you can just listen by, oh sorry, I dropped something there, by telling Alexa to turn on WDVR. Uh, I also have another podcast called Sit Downs and Sessions. We've done some great shows recently with some great musicians, uh, including one with a fantastic celtic band called runa so if you're into celtic music give that one a listen sit downs and sessions you can find it on all your uh, apple podcasts and all that kind of stuff don't forget if you are enjoying this show you can become a patron uh, if you think we're worth five bucks a month head over to patreon.com slash island to learn more if you don't want to do that but you still want to help us out just leave us a five star rating on apple podcasts or anywhere you get your shows thanks to everybody who's done that i really do appreciate it if you have any comments or questions, you can always just send them directly to me, digginoakisland at gmail.com. Keep in mind, if you do send me something like that, I probably will answer it here on a future show. If you don't want it read aloud, just make a note of that. I'll do my best to answer you via email when I get a chance. And don't forget, uh, speaking of all this stuff, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just go to your search bar, type in at island. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Diggin Oak Island.